All right, yeah, how are we doing? How do you think it sounds? Oh, wait, I gotta pour myself a drink. All right, get yourself a drink. I bought, I got a drink. I mean, I, this is... I mean, this is good on-amp banter, so... Well, I, I You should I have been pouring with... that drink while the, while the intro song was playing. Well, I, I, I still can do it right now. You ready? Yeah. And welcome to another episode of Music Cover to Covered with your host, Mike Venezia. Who the hell am I? I'm just a guy who likes music, always have and always will. And uh, within my years of working in and around the music industry, I've made some friends with some very interesting people, and they will be coming on this show in the weeks to come and months to come. And we're going to be talking about lots of different topics, including how to pour a beer right, because I have way too much of a foamy head on my beer right now, which kind of sucks. But, um, you know, certain people are good at certain things and certain people are good at other things. And that's just, you know, not the one that's, that's, you know, Hey Mike, it's, it's not my, I think you should be very happy. You're not good at head. Um, that was great. Uh, <laughs> anyway, today on music cover to covered, we have a very special guest with us, old friend of mine from uh, New York originally. And we've worked hard together. We've played hard together. We've made it to the Miller time part of it occasionally, including now. And his name is Mr. Rob McDermott. Hello, hello. Rob, what would you say your title is in the music industry? Like, how would you just, in 10 words or less, define what it is that you do? I am an artist manager. Great. So that was four words, which is great, which is what we effort for. Five. Well, if I am an artist management. I mean, if you did like five, anyway. I am a an artist manager. I am. I am is. I am currently. I am is are an artist manager. still are. In artist manager. There you go. More than 10. On to bigger and better things. So obviously this is something that music's been a passion of yours ever since you were a young kid, I'm assuming. Would that be correct to say? Music has always kind of played a role, but you know, you grow up in Long Island in the 70s and 80s and you end up with a lot of WNBC pop music and yep. stuff like that. And then eventually WBAB, you know, all that. All the rock and, you know, because we were more rock guys than we were the uh, LIR, DRE guys. We didn't probably get to that until we learned a bit more about music. These are radio stations from Long Island at the time. That LIR, the real alternative stations. Yeah. It's where you'd hear Depeche Mode. It's where you'd hear David Bowie. Yeah. It's where you'd hear um, probably Bow Wow Wow and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, like uh, right. who did Kids in, Kids in America, you know? Kids in America. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, so yeah, that was WLIR and then they became WDRE, but you know, for people like Rob and I, who were really big into the rock world, W fingers, metal shop, fingers, metal shop on WBAB on Sunday nights. That was, that was our thing. And, and, uh, fingers was the guy that played every new metal band before you had even heard of them, which was his voice. I used to be able to do his voice. I can't remember uh, fingers, right? I'm not if sure I start I doing do fingers, I start start sounding like Pharrell on the bench. Like, <laughs> I love Scotty Pharrell. Yeah, bought me a cold one. Yeah, you know. Um, Dude, I used to love Scotty Pharrell and Tom Lycus. I used to listen to those guys in L.A. Well, that's I think they're still. I think they're still doing it. They're still they doing it in one way or another. Or yeah, yeah, but it's it's great that you bring up these radio personalities because one of the things that you wanted to do initially and you did for a while, especially in in college, was be a, a radio DJ and you know, we're fast forwarding a little bit in your life, but well, actually I'm going to back you up for a second, just to answer your initial question. Sure. It's very interesting. I didn't know I had a love for music. I just liked music. Mm -hmm. I was supposed to be an aerospace engineer. I was all set. My uncle was vice president of spatial division, 
So I grew up from the late 70s to the 80s to all that stuff, watching, learning, wanting, and then something just switched. Most, most of the time I tell people that I think I got very upset around Challenger Disaster. Okay. So that would have been 86. That probably would have been eighth-ish grade for us. We were, yeah, eighth grade. Eighth yeah. grade, yeah. I'd have to say it slowly turned. You had that initial so I was light switch, be, if you yeah, will. Yeah, so all of a sudden, I just switched over. You know, I mean, I would get the, it, it, it's almost that, uh, it, it's almost a stereotypical, my dad's yelling at me, why are you buying all these posters and records <laughs> by the time I get to like 16, 15, 16 yeah. years old? And I'm like, I don't know. You know, because at 13 years old, I was making a space shell out of my closet. You know, yeah. so it all just kind of switches, you know, that took us, that took me now up until kind of getting in there and, and, and pretty much actually let's, let's go there because this is where kind of the love of music came in is when we first met. Yep. We met probably around 1989, 88. Summer of 89 is when you and I met and uh, we were both going to be high school seniors mm -hmm. and we met at a non-alcoholic teen club called the Dry Rock Cafe. So it was great. So. Um, it was run by the Nassau County, had this North Shore Community Council. I can't remember. The, Something I feel like that, bad. Yeah. Carol, I think, was the lady's name who ran it. And this lovely guy, Al, was a guy who was put in charge of it. Poor Al. Yeah. Right? And then all of a sudden, there was a bunch of us kids. Because I think I needed a summer job. And I ended up, I think that summer, I was going around, was it that summer? Where I was a carpet layer. I actually, ah. every Saturday, I would go out with, I think it was Carol's son-in-law, and just go around, and I learned, I mean, I can I can put carpet down in any room now, <laughs> right, learning that at 17 We all old. need a skill. Then, it came into, they're like, oh, we just got this venue, this old, I think it was an old pizza place, or an old Italian place, or something like that. Well, before, it became a pizza place afterwards. That's right, it's a pizza place now still, isn't it? Yeah, last I saw, and it's been a while, but that's what it became, but it, what it was before was a place called Diamond Lills, and Diamond Lills was a biker bar, <laughs> so you couldn't get further away from its inception, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's, that's, what, that's what the Dry Rock Cafe was, and... I forget exactly how I came to go to the Dry Rock Cafe. I think one of my friends told me to come to meet you because we we booked a gig to play there, but we didn't have a band. So that was the funny part of it was that I think it was Dana, our mutual friend Dana. He's hey, he's like, yeah, we I, we booked a show. I'm like, we don't have a band. Uh, we, we have to do it now. Okay. So we, <laughs> we hurried, hurriedly put this band together. We, call, we called ourselves Oracle, which instantly, from the first note we played, became Orifice. Yeah, that was fun. But either way, <laughs> Rob and I developed a friendship from there, and we just really hit it off right away. And the next thing you know, we go from, you know, knowing each other in high school, you know, uh, doing sound for bands. You were booking the bands yeah, I was there. managing the bands. Uh, you know, because, again, we were all in high school bands, right? Yep, you know, my, exactly. My band's uh, Nuclearchy and Asterisk, mm -hmm. you know? Well, there were two places to play, really, during that time if you were underage. underage right. There was the Dry Rock Cafe and that place called The Angle. I mean, there occasionally would be like a school battle of the bands or something at a church. Right, I remember Right Track In would, would do one. Yeah, once in a while, like on a Sunday, like right, you know, yeah. Sunday afternoon matinee. But really, it, like those are the places that were almost 
definitely the Dry Rock Cafe was like dedicated to that purpose. Well, I ended up doing, I was end up promoting a few nights at the right track in eventually. Yep, there you go. That was so. that was down the road after that. So, so we, you know, we we had this sort of connection with bands and music, and and you and I more or less ran the music end of everything that happened in that place in one way or another. And then we grew up a little bit. We graduated high school, and then we both went to college together. I left shortly thereafter for a whole bunch of reasons, the least of which was not financial because, hey, Post was expensive. CW was, Post was expensive. very expensive. And it was expensive then. It's ridiculous now. I can imagine. I mean, it's like 50 grand a year for tuition. It's like some ungodly number. What a shithole that place is. <laughs> hey, you got not one but two degrees from there. So, Well, no, it was really one degree. Actually, no, the second degree was learning how to deal with assholes. That was the second degree yeah. I got from. I got that degree yeah, somewhere yeah, else. Yeah. If I could shout out the actual assholes at <laughs> Long Island University in the, in the communications department, I totally would. <laughs> well, you moved on to CW Post, and in your time there, we both worked at the radio station. We both started there as interns initially before we even graduated yeah, we were high school. High school interns, yeah. actually. And then we both went to college there and I was, I was there for a semester, but you stayed on and stayed, stayed with the program. And then the, the next thing I remember was, you know, of course you were programming the station and we, and even, even though I wasn't going to college there, we both still worked rock and roll weekend. So we both had our shows on rock and roll weekend, which was all metal essentially yeah, metal from Fridays at eight o'clock until, until Sunday. Sunday night, midnight. Yep. Yeah. So it was basically fingers metal shop, but all weekend long right, right. run well, by that, run by kids. But that was the classic <laughs> thing that was started probably at least 10 years before we got there. That yeah. That had a name. rock and roll heavy music. Yep. Where we grew up on, on Long Island, we we're in the South shore. So this is the North shore. So it's 20 miles North of where we are. And, but the, the signal, it was a, it was a small 250 watt FM signal, but it would actually follow it would it would shoot across the line sound because it's all fm's line of sight right so and it would go we were on a little bit of a hill i guess it was probably why and you'd actually hear this signal in southern new york you know uh the southwestern part of connecticut mm -hmm. and then you'd actually mamaronac and port yep. chester in that area yep, yep. and then you'd hear it as far east as northport and huntington yep which is probably about 15 20 miles east of of there. And then once you got the Queens, it would get cut off because there was the other metal station, which was the building everyone knew, which was WSOU. So getting back to it, you know, we, we worked at this station as interns. We wound up working at the station as DJs. I remember distinctly, you would wind up getting some internships in the music industry itself. So where was your first internship? So I, uh, I got myself an internship at the metal department at Columbia Records. And how um, long, how long were you there? I, I want to say it was my second semester of freshman year and my first year of my first semester of junior. So but I know it was about 11 months long. I was there for great. So then for those that may be listening that, you know, they hear, Oh, you got an internship. So you must've had some glorified thing or what, what were the, what were your exact responsibilities? Like what were you doing as an intern at Columbia records? Actually, you know, I got, I got pretty lucky. The main thing you're doing is you're actually sitting, stuffing envelopes mailing them <laughs> yeah. out to a record state. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, Oh, yeah. hey, this new, this new single's going out, so we need these 300 packages done today. Well, mind you, that was when envelopes used to get stuffed with media, right? right? With CDs. Now it's like, email these 300 stations some MP3. 
Yeah, I mean, you'd have to, you know, there was an office next door that I would sit on the floor and just have these tons of mailers around me and just CD, little letter that they wrote or whatever it was about yep. it, pack it into a package, seal it up, put it aside, you know, all of next. a sudden. Yeah, every, <laughs> and, and by the time you're in the flow, all of a sudden you'd go, oh, I forgot to put the pack, the piece of paper in this one. <laughs> so you got to open it up and, you know, because you just, you know, you do, you by, by 170, you're just kind of like, all right. And then you're just like, ah, oh, shit, did I really just seal that? And it was really cool because they slowly needed more responsibilities. I would assume it was going like this. Record companies were slowly paring down mm-hmm. their hard rock and metal. Yep. Right. For ultimately elimination almost everywhere within the next couple of years in the early 90s. As they as they needed more help, I ended up starting to call. I learned how to call CMJ stations or, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. And I was like, uh, I don't know how to talk to these other people. Like, Hi, this is Rob. I'm calling from the Columbia Metal Department. Like, I want to talk to you about your records that we're that we have with you, you know? Yeah. And, you know, you, you've, it was really nerve-wracking, even though I'm just talking to another kid just like me. You know? Yeah. But because you had this responsibility that you didn't know how to do it. You're like, right. uh, I know how to dial. Right. But thank God for the <laughs> gift of gab. I was able to get over that one yep. eventually. And then I was just like, all right, I want to find a new internship. I ended up just picking up the phone. And this had to be, I want to say this was like March of 92 now. And I called up and uh, this woman answered and I said, hey, you know, I'm looking for an internship. You know, and I had probably called about seven or eight places and either they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, we don't do that or well, pick a, pick a number of getting turned down type of stuff. But I had to keep going because I was like, I need to find something. I, I go in and this woman, Amy, you know, I later learned was Amy, uh, picked up the phone. And I said, you need an intern? She said, yeah, we just had one that just left not too long ago. Can you come in on Friday? Skipped classes that day. <laughs> just went into there. So, so you, you can see classes were something that slowly became like, yeah, I'm getting a broadcasting degree. I, I would venture to guess that you learned more in your 11 months at Columbia and in your internship at Concrete Management than you did in broadcasting class. <laughs> yes, by the way, yes. For what I eventually used. So I go to the interview. They need an intern. I basically become an intern almost immediately at a place called Concrete Management. Uh, with this woman, uh, Amy McGuire, who it was really just, it was a small company that was uh, manager, Walter O'Brien, Andy Gould. A- Amy McGuire was kind of the office manager assistant of it all. And they were just, you know, they were hitting pay dirt. They, these two guys had Pantera, White Zombie. When I started, the White Zombie record last six, the season had just come out like the week before. And uh, April, April 7, 1992. Of course, you remember the day, you know? <laughs> Now, going back to that experience, like internships outside of the school experience, the interesting thing about Post at the time is they have the Tilla Center, which is a 2,500-seat concert hall. Bands used to play, all that stuff. Now, the cool thing about that, and I got to give a lot of credit to the Tilla Center because I really was able to hone and learn my production skills and learn what things are and learn how to hang a drape and, and par cans and had no problem rolling cases. I still have no problem rolling cases. I learned all of that stuff that I could I could now go on to I could go onto a stage and not know how to do everything works nowadays, but I could help out with everything. It's because, practical knowledge because I had had that because I had yeah. gone through that. Um, same thing, you know. Obviously, radio station was just practical knowledge and dealing with it and learning how to talk to people at the record companies that were calling you asking you to help them with the records. All the uh, all that was all the stuff, right? The internship 
working 20 hours, 30 hours as a student crew. You know, and, and I got to do cool things. Bob Dylan came through. Lenny Kravitz was opening from that year. That was my first real concert. Local crew, they call it. Uh, a few months later, was it Midnight Oil came through. And I had to, and, I, and I, I volunteered and I did a trust spot. But, oh, man, funny story. I'm, I'm on the headset. It's probably my first time on a headset talking to LDs and all this stuff. Because, you know, I'm 20, 19 years old, 18 years old. And I could tell the guitarist was starting to fuck with me. He was just hiding in the shadow. And my spot wouldn't get him. And he would just keep backing up at him on purpose. <laughs> and they're like, and they're like, pick up the guitars, you know, pick up that guy. You know, I'd get him and I'd go, I go, I fucking am. Tell me to get the fuck out of the shadows. <laughs> That's what I remember saying. Here I am, some like punk ass kid on it. And I'm just like, I'm like, fuck you. Don't be yelling. Don't be telling me what to do on this. I can see what he's doing. You should notice what he's doing. Well, here's here's a great way to reference what that meant for him. I will give you a dollar if you can name the guitarist of Midnight Oil. <laughs> yeah. So, Fucking asshole. good for him. Actually, his official name to me is Asshole That Would Hide in a Shadow. There That's you go. His official name. A.S. Asshole, asshole Shadows. Right. So, so, anyway, but it's really important. You've got to get as much different experience. And, you know, I don't know if it's multiple internships. I don't know what it is. But when you go... You know, I, when I have people ask me now, well, what do I do? I, I go, it's easy. Talk to anyone in the music business in your town. I don't care how big or small it is. They're always going to need free help. And if they like you and they trust you and you just stick around just enough that you don't annoy them, they'll eventually ask you to help them. And the other good part of it that goes along with it, there's no such thing as bad experience. You could learn great things from great people. You could learn what not to do from people that, aren't as good yeah. at their job. Unfortunately, more people learn that. Than there, there's, well, yeah. if they learned it, there'd be a lot more good people. Right. But that's, right. as, a, as a sales trainer, as I've been in, in my career, that's one of the best pieces of advice that I've ever given anyone that I, and I continue to impart to this day. And that's what you pick up by many different varied pieces of experience like you did between working local crew, between working at a record label, between working at a management company, between broadcasting at a college radio station, learning how to program. And now, as an artist manager, you put all of those skills into work. And it all means something because it gave you that experience, that background foundation where you could speak in a language that they can understand and you look relevant. Well, yeah, and I didn't know until I... I didn't know at the time that I was, oh, let me go do this. I have to do this if I want to learn to... No, I just did it because it felt like it's something I needed to know. Like if I was really going to go for it, I don't, I couldn't half-ass it, right? Either I wasn't going to do it or I was going to do every single thing I could find to see what interests me. You Look, know, we all, we all started somewhere. Yeah. I mean, you know, we all wanted to be the rock hero, you know, one time or another. I, I anybody that tells me different, you're lying. <laughs> you I know, just, I just thought too much on stage. I was always overthinking what I was doing. Making sure I didn't fuck something up, and there—that—that's I just didn't. I couldn't get into the fun of the that. Group. Yeah, that takes all the fun out of it. When yeah. you're thinking like, all right, the next note, I better hit E. I yeah. better hit E. Damn it, E flat. Oops, yeah. I look like an idiot. I'm oh. gonna ruin the rest of this show. I hate myself. Yeah, or oh, I hated that slide. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, you just yeah, like, yeah. oh, yeah. Well, so and then, no one else notices it, but you and the sound guy. Well, that's the worst part of it is that like you're fretting over this thing and it's like having a hair out of place out of 50,000 hairs on your head. Nobody notices it yeah. yet for you. It's like the glaring thing that you're focusing on forever. Yeah. Right. Well, so, now, no, well, now it helps. Right. Cause, yeah. Cause when I hear my artist hit that note, I'm like, Ooh, 
<laughs> but but, but also, no does. And, yeah. and we had this, Rob and I had this conversation last night. Sometimes we overthink it because we look for these things. And that's a good and a bad thing because it means you're, you're a perfectionist, but at the same time, you're never happy. I've been really happy with a lot of things, but there's times where I just, you just got to keep looking at it going, why can't this come together the way that I keep envisioning it? Yeah. You know what I mean? That's, that's really what it kind of comes down to. It's not like the, the, the proverbial polishing the turd. It's not trying to make something that's bad. Good. It's, you know, it's good and you know, it could be even better, but you just, you're not quite getting there and you're so not sure close. it's so close like it's and everything ugh. someone tries just isn't what you're hearing in your head and you're just like yeah ugh. and you can't you put know? it in words and you're yeah. not there and you can't put your hands on you just like, <laughs> well it's funny because the last few years i haven't done it yet right i've been i've been teasing myself to do it i'm like i just want to learn mixing mm -hmm. because i hear a mix in my head and sometimes when I get a mix from something and I don't hear what I want, I just want to be able to tweak it just to make sure that I know what I'm hearing. It's and, like, and, the, and, and the producer's going, no fucking way. Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to keep this guy far away from me. Please step away from the mixing board. Step away from the mixing well, console. I, I do Thank that you. when I talk to, when I talk to producers and mixers, I go, listen, either I'm going to be someone that you really enjoy talking to or your most annoying person, but you've got to do me a favor and you've got to tell me. You can't just be like, well, that's what the manager wants. I got to do it. No, you can fight with me all you want. You know, I need, if we're going to make this great, we need to have that conversation. Creative so friction. People, so many people nowadays go, well, I thought that's what you wanted. No, <laughs> not at this process. Creative friction yeah. is good. Don't, yeah. you can't acquiesce and just be like, I don't want to have the fight. It doesn't have to be. That friction. doesn't help. It doesn't have to be friction. It has to be like, no, you're hearing that wrong. You know, we should really talk about this. Because there's no reason not to try something. Yeah. That's my take on it. Tape is free these days, yeah, right? right? You could do 9,000 takes and it costs you the same. I know. We're on what? Take 35 of this whole <laughs> something thing? Something right like now. that. I mean, how many times did we try this out yesterday? You know, we're using a new unit. I'm using a new unit. I'm using this Roadcaster Pro. Big shout out to Road. Please endorse my show. Um, the, the point is that, you know, we're playing around with this thing multiple times and these are people that are actual pros at it. And, and if, if they're not giving you, or if you're not giving them accurate feedback to what it is that you want to hear and you're not having that discourse, then there's no trust. And then you're just going to, somebody's just going to go, well, like you said, well, I, I did what, what he said, but that's not good enough. I had the funniest thing happen. So we're, we're mixing today and it's kind of cool, right? Technology has allowed it, right? I'm, I'm working on an artist and we're mixing with our mixer in the UK live. And I don't know how to explain like all the sounds that I hear. So I'm just like, yeah, you know, that plinky sound going on over there. And I was like, plink. I go, yeah, it goes plink, 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 plink. That one. And they finally figured out what it was. It was like a key sound that was kind of put in there. And I'm in there. I'm like, yeah, you just. Make that fit in a pocket a bit better, a bit better, please. <laughs> you know, it was really funny. And but good, it was like <laughs> a good producer though will be able to translate that because oh, not knew, everybody can knew. speak their language. They knew, but it was one or two people that were just laughing at the yeah. fact. Was, yeah, that, that plinky thing, plinky, plinky sound. <laughs> I like the plinky. Ta no, leave the plinky. No, yeah, take no, out. Seriously. Take out the plinky. Make no, it. leave the plinky. No, no, a little higher, a little lower, no, lower, uh, less plinky. Uh, so now you, you've interned at Concrete Management. So and, I'm interned at Concrete Management. And then? I never left. <laughs> Basically, it yeah. Really is, it really is the truth. It really is the true story. So from 
1992. Now, now we'll gloss through. We'll, we'll do, all right, hold on, we need that montage now, right now, right? 94, I start working exclusively for Andy Gould. Getting and paid. Zombie, right, getting paid, right? Well, that was <laughs> the cool part about it, right? People have to remember that in 92, 93, White Zombie and Pantera were like the number one and two metal acts, period. Like, you're talking about they took a lot of real estate in the metal community. Yeah, and I and the best part about it was I was I was a fan of both and didn't know I didn't it, it sounds funny. I didn't do my full research and know that they worked with both of them. Mm-hmm. Right? I knew that they I think I saw Pantera. I don't think Zombie on an old whatever that book was maybe a year or two before it didn't have Zombie on there and I was like, you know, and and my my uh college girlfriend at the time had turned me totally on to Pantera my freshman year. Um, the Cowboys from Hell, and I we mean, played that. We played Cowboys from Hell on the radio station, domination repeatedly, Dominations and it was shit. That would get me into the pit. You that know, was a I, lot of fun. It's one of those things that I actually frown upon now. If someone's working for a company, to go into the pit because it just really shows. But there were a couple of times. There was one funny time where I'm, uh, and, and actually, this is a really funny Pantera esque story. So every time they played New York, our offices were on Fifty Third and Eighth in an apartment building. And they'd play Roseland, which was around the corner. So I would have to go down and meet up with the road crew at noon and run errands. I was the production assistant for the day, coming from the office. Um, eventually, they nicknamed me Coffee Boy. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's, a very, there's a very famous legendary tour manager named Guy Sykes who does a lot of great acts still, yep. um, who nicknamed me Coffee Boy. Depends on who it was. They'd, they'd make me do a few shots make me smoke a few hits of weed and then send me off running errands all day. <laughs> right. And that, that was what it was like working for Pantera. Like you, you didn't get out alive half the time. I've been there. And uh, I mean, well you did, you just got out slowly and crawling. <laughs> so it I, hurt. I, yeah. It my, hurt then. And it hurt a few days it, after. It hurts thinking about it. My, my nickname eventually became puke boy after a few years of, of a few late night parties with those guys. So I, there was, <laughs> there was nothing more embarrassing slash empowering than puking in a garbage can backstage at Nassau Coliseum on film. Is it on film? I weren't you captured. I never knew if that short, that quick shot of someone puking in a garbage can was me. I'm fairly certain you, and when, what Rob is referring to is there, there were the, the, the Pantera videos. They were one of the bands to really bring home videos. Like big, they started that whole thing and they were legendary and they filmed everything. they filmed everything and they put in a lot and they cut out a lot but what they put in was really really good i can't i would love to see the stuff they didn't put in uh but i'm fairly certain you are in at least one of those videos i don't remember reverse don't remember. drinking we'll, we'll we'll put it that reverse way reverse drinking hey listen <laughs> it was fun i think i think that if it was at nasa coliseum night i think that was a night like where I met Joey Buttafuoco. I remember I was at that show. Yeah, I was at that show, and I met Joey. A drunken photo of me and Joey. That was Pantera. Open. Uh, I'm sorry. Typo Negative opened up for Pantera <laughs> that tour, <laughs> and I'll never forget because me and and a friend of mine who I went with to the show. You were nice enough to put me on the list. That for was that 94 show. then, right? Uh, it was yeah, I believe so. 93, 94. Yeah. We were waiting in the will call line and the will call line is, is where people wait when they're on the guest list or bought tickets in advance or, or something like that. And me and my friend Rich were there and we're waiting in line. And I'll never forget, we, we were standing right behind Joey Buttafuoco and right in front of Kenny Hickey from Typo Negative's mother. So it was a really interesting sandwich. Yeah, for, for, for a Long Island, for, for, for a Long Island Brooklyn type of scene, yeah. 
Yeah. It was yeah. really, really wacky. Like, here's Joey Buttafuoco. And this is like, his name was everywhere. Yeah, yeah. He was he was known then. Like you may not even know his name now. And, and he was he was oh, a big it was a big scandal plagued yeah, yeah. time in that in that era. Puke Boy makes good though. Puke oh, yeah. Boy winds just, up moving to L.A. Well, yeah. So what happened was um, White Zombie was based out in Los Angeles because their record company Geffen was there, and Andy decided that in order to the next level of expanding the company, he should be out by White Zombie so he could be at the record company all the time. Talked to me at the end of 94 and, and asked me to come out. And, you know, now you got to remember back then in everyone's mind in New York, L.A. was like this kind of like, yeah, the weather is nice, but everyone's assholes type of thing. So I was like, I don't know if I want to go there. It's an opportunity that you really shouldn't say no to when you're yeah. 22 years old, 23 years old, yeah. you know, and and you're getting a chance to kind of move to to where it is. And Andy was really encouraging. He was just like, listen, come out for a month. See if you like it. We'll bring you right back to New York. If you don't like it, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, I doubt they would have ever done that, but uh, <laughs> you know, and I said, all right, I'll do it. So I actually moved there in January of 1995, went right into, they were making Astro Creep. This Astro is Creep 2000. Yep. Astro Creep 2000. There was no time to waste. Cause that thing was coming out in April and I just got there in January and they were just finishing the record, and we had to set it up. What's crazy is it's 25 years since that album came out now. I know. Isn't that crazy? I know. How are we only 23? I don't get that. Well, I mean, we live, I believe we live many lives. Yeah, I think we have. <laughs> <laughs> that took off. Andy is, is the, he's the best person to ever learn from. He was, as my mentor, I, as I still call him to this day, he's still my mentor. Big 20, props to Andy Gould. 25 years later. He is such a great guy. He is so much fun that you just can't help but meet everyone, right? So let, let's, let's... Should we back off and explain? Well, no, we're the, not going to explain too much. I'm just going to give a quick synopsis about Andy because I wound up working for Andy a few years later myself. Yeah. And he's still one of my dearest friends to this day as he is yours. And we love the guy. Like, we'll do anything for the guy. Brutal in a lot of ways. And Andy had the best mean insult slash encouraging thing that he ever said to me one day I, I screwed up something and I forget what it was and he turned to me and he was so mad about it and something like that and he, and he goes you know what he goes you're so fucking good at what you do your screw up just made it seem twice as bad that's a great line <laughs> absolutely that's like the nicest compliment beat down that right, you'll that ever you get ever have, from anyone right, right? Yeah. I still remember I still remember it because it was just like he basically said Listen, you're really good. So whenever you fuck up, now it's twice as bad. It's like because you you're don't good. Fuck, up. fuck you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's, it's you're good, but fuck you on this instance. Yeah, on this in this instance, yeah. yes. But yeah, now Andy, I mean, like I've I've been on the receiving end of that. You know, like you've I've seen better heads on lettuce. Um, that that was a really good one. Um, you know, there's 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 a whole litany of these. You, had a, you have a funny way of handing in your notice. Yeah, that's that's another good one. Yeah. Yeah, we could probably just do a show. Just oh, on my Andy God. Isms. But the thing is, you know, we need to do it. And and Andy, if you're listening to this, we need you on the show. Me, you and Rob, just so you can berate us live. That would be great. Oh, that would actually be pretty good. <laughs> Andy, we give kudos all 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 praise to Andy. Gould. Yeah, right. Um, but Andy, obviously a motivated person and white zombie, everything that he did with white zombie really rose the level of concrete management West. White Zombie, then Rob Zombie, mm -hmm. you know, as it as it, which is when on. I came into the company. Right. 
Well, this is uh, when did you come in? What 98, year? January 98. of 98. Yeah, so so 95. So we we formed Andy Gould Management in 1997. Then I believe we started picking up bands like Monster Magnet. I had a band, I believe Ultra Spank at the time. I hadn't quite had Static yet. That became Static X. I gave um, him the X. Yeah. <laughs> that was my doing. Andy was still doing all the Rob stuff. We picked up Monster Magnet. There's going to be more than I can remember. From typo that. negative. Typo, typo was 1999. Um, I had static. No, it was before that because it was before I started. It was at the end of the cycle for October Rust. Well, world. Yeah, that's right. Well, they were made world coming down. That was 99, 2000. Right. Yeah. That was 99, 2000. So it was 98, 99. So I had, I had a static X record coming. Pan, uh, not Pantera. Uh, typo negative. We're making world coming down. Ultra Spank. Ultra Spank had just kind of come, but Epic was doing the major label bullshit thing with them. Power Man 5000. We can't forget Power Man 5000. Stabbing so, Westward. Stabbing. We Barbara Rose came in yeah. uh, and brought Stabbing Westward and Far. And Far. Yeah. And Far. So we had, I mean, we were on fire. We had, were having so much fun there was in the, the rock I, space in yeah. that like 95 to 2000 range and it was really right at the at the at the explosion for the five minutes the new metal was the shit we were doing all that cold i think i picked up and then uh i got a meeting in late 99 with a friend of mine well a guy that i had known named jeff blue uh and sat down with him and met with himself and this scrawny little singer dude you know because he had just joined the band not too long ago and the band was called hybrid theory for those of you who don't know, Hybrid Theory became Lincoln Park. We had to change the name. And that record came out, and it'll be it's going to be 20 years in October. Which is so crazy. Yeah, I know. It's October October 24th, 2000. I met him in October 99, uh, became their manager in February 2000. They made the album that is Hybrid Theory in March. We mixed it in May. We changed the name in May. <laughs> we, we we got, you know. It was a busy we got year. Everything got, we did, I mean, I could just keep going. When you look at how that thing just ran, and they were on tour by July. Literally, that for a record that was supposed to come out the following February, it came out in October because it just, <laughs> because the first song exploded out of nowhere. Yep. And really, that, that band... No matter what else I did, right? And you know, I had a few other bands that I managed. I, you know, uh, I, I worked with, I was, I co-managed Stained for a little while with a guy named Michael Polly when I was at the firm. You know, and that was a big company with everyone. Yeah. You know, that was that was Limp Bizkit, Corn, Backstreet Boys. Uh, that was my life. It was all consuming in my life for ten years, nine years. That whole experience. Some people would would kill to have that band for eighteen months. Something like that. Like, all right, we, we did all right. You know, we did one album that was cool and was a fun, you know, couple of years. You had them for 10 years and every album was doing as well, if not better than the one before it, albeit let's take hybrid theory out of, out of the equation, which was so Titanic, you know, it's hard to measure how big that was, but every album after that did really, really well. And they were touring and they were doing really, really well. And how do you sustain that? Like as a manager, like how keeping up that energy, but still looking for other things to work on. You've never been as long as I've known you personally with bands. You've never been the one trick pony. It pretty much turned me into a one trick pony during that era. I guess for a right? little bit it had to because right? yeah, because I just I couldn't do anything else. The the brain power that you had to because you had to create and stay that far ahead, knowing what was going on. And listen, I, I, I did stints, you know, like I said, you know, stained for a little while. But by the way, Lincoln would always get in the way. Lincoln was, you know, I mean, good reason why it would get in the way. But 
it was always the thing that I'd have to stop working on the project for. Uh, being a Long Islander, you know, I ended up uh, managing Alexa Ray Joel for a couple of years. You know, so that was good. Some Billy Joel's daughter. Rock and roll royalty. But again, it all eventually goes back to I'm swamped and, you know, and dealing with six guys, so many entities trying to trying to piece everything together and running the entire show. And, you know, I, I kept a small management staff for the most part. You know, eventually it was just myself and two other people. Yeah. You know, and, and it really, it worked. It worked for me. And then I moved, pair up with other companies. Eventually that took me, that took me to the end of 2010. And then I just walked away. It burned me out. So when you say it burned you out, I mean, it, it, people sometimes don't understand, like the average layperson, and I'm not putting down the average layperson, but they think, how could you walk away from that? It was this, it was that, it was blah, blah, blah. It's hard to make that decision. I'm sure it wasn't easy in a lot of ways, but in some ways it was probably the easiest decision you ever had to make. In, in, di- in different regards, it, it's, it's like a marriage, right? So it became adversarial in some regard. It became still the wonderful relationship it was in other regards. And then it was just, it made, that made my decision for me, right? When you're around a group of people that just, it's not conducive to how you really want your life to be, you just kind of walk away from it. I had burned out probably a year or two before, you know, and I really kind of had, really had to restructure my life and take some time off for a second and just kind of real put it together. I, I, it wasn't the way that I, I the, the value system that I grew up with it was turning out not to be that way, you know? And so sometimes you have to really, you have to be able to look yourself in the face every morning, right? And say, you know what? I did the best I could, or I'm going to go and kick out, kick this day. Right during that time, I didn't listen to music for about a year. Listen, it was a great run and, you know, and maybe I just wasn't cut out to be the biggest of the big managers and play that whole entire thing, but I needed to go somewhere else with it. And, and, and for my own self, because I liked how I did it. I wasn't going to change to someone else's way of doing it. I liked how I was always doing it. And it was very successful. And that's know? a lot. I mean, to be able to go out on your own terms in a lot of ways like that, that's envious. Because there's a lot of people out there that their tenure with whatever it be, a, a job or a career or whatever, it ends not by their own choice. Yeah. They're invited to search for other employment. Uh, let, let's put it in a gentle way right. sometimes. Or they just become irrelevant. Yeah, I mean, it, it was time to renegotiate my deal. My deal was coming up. And, you know, he was, you could tell the game was going to start. And I was like, let's just, let's just call it what it is. And that's, again, a hard decision to yeah. make in a lot of ways. Because it's a very introspective kind of thing. And to say, you know what? I need to walk away from this because I'm not made to do this anymore. And to admit that to yourself takes a lot of guts, but it, it's got to hurt a little bit. Well, listen, it's either that or I walked around functionally burnt out yeah, and just kind of going through the motions, right? You can't, this is a job that you have to love. You know, I know, listen. Oh, it's a I, lifestyle job. I know. There, I, there's I, no I know doubt. People, I know people that can kind of just phone this job in and they're really good at it. And it's all business and it's all that. I was just wasn't that person. My heart has to be in it. My, in order to get the in order to get the success that I believe an artist deserves, and to see their vision through, my passion level has to be theirs. And now moving on from that, you've you've obviously you know it's not as if you stopped artist management altogether. No, I, you, I after that I took a lot of contract gigs. Mm-hmm. I just thought it would be fun to kind of try a bunch of stuff. 
Um, I, I kept my management company going with a few people and I had a bunch of mid-level bands that should have done something, but they were all damaged in some way, shape, or form. <laughs> Well, listen, I'm sorry well, to laugh. Well, but that's the goal. That, that's the goal that you, you know, what you do is right. When you go through that, you're like, oh, I've been through this shit. I can, I can see what I can do. But they're all, I mean. It was too if, far gone. One of them was in one shape or form. Then all of a sudden, another one of them, they had this inner squabble. That, like there was so much of that, that it was so beyond. I ended up for a while there. And this is what makes it even more disconcerting, right? Now, now I can look back and smile as I'm talking about it. Every band. It was like a gimping fucking guy, you know. It's like, <laughs> it was like it was like I know what you can do. And by the way, all these bands still exist now. They're a version of what they could be, or what they always were going to be. But I couldn't help it at that time. And then I was just like, you know what? I, I need a break. Uh, enter an old friend of mine from the firm days, a guy named Ian Jenkinson, and he's like, why don't you come? Uh, I'm I'm starting up with. Uh, company called c tickets uh, vivendi owns them and they're a ticketing company out of the uk and they were just starting in the u.s and he goes let's do biz dev there he goes i, I yeah i'll bring you in and i was like all right cool so i go and meet up and we sit down and we go through this whole thing and it was a really good experience actually to do something totally different i still was finding bands i was allowed to kind of manage if i had found what i wanted to manage yeah so i do see tickets for a year Ended up not being my thing, but I was glad to have tried it. Almost like what I did in college. Try so what, everything. Well, what were you doing at C tickets? Like you... So biz dev. So you would go and you would try to do pre-sale tickets with artists or you try to, eventually we were trying to see what they were going to do because, you know, when you're a ticketing company trying to come into this crowded ticketing market, it was, it was difficult no matter what. So biz dev, right? So anything that had to do with tickets or getting uh festivals or getting any of that and it was a real slow go it was really difficult and it really wasn't something that i liked overall was it because you really weren't finding the satisfaction and success as fast as you would like or no it's because the idea of what a uh, someone who the guy who was running it they had just brought in he was an m a guy never done ticketing so but the hard part is bringing him in and what his ideas and thoughts were at the time had no real bearing on what reality was. So we would have these kind of conversations where he believed that there was a certain way of doing it. And I was like, but I've done it. But that's where, that's where, you know, you, you say that you've been on, you know, at, when you were at that company and, and I draw a parallel myself, you know, I work for a guitar manufacturer and, and, and I'm, I'm in sales and I have a territory that I manage and I sell to dealers and I, I speak with dealers and I tell them these things, but I also have to remind them, look, I've been on your side of the counter too. I was on the phone getting the calls from the reps and arguing with them over end column pricing and all these other things. Right. And then like, I have to be able to sympathize. You can't just go and I wouldn't be able to do my job and do it well if I had to do like a Svengali type thing and just be like, well, it's all about us. Yeah. And that's what it sounds like the situation you were caught in a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm sure being a brash manager doesn't help when I'm <laughs> in those scenarios, right? You know, the, the guy who ended up doing the job after me, who was an old intern of mine years ago, which is even funnier, which is great. So I gave him his blessing. Way better politician than I was. You still got to be able to have that. You know what I mean? I was never, I was never, I was a good politician to a point. Now you were more blunt force trauma. Yeah, it all <laughs> dude. I, I've been. I found a whole bunch of old uh, letters I would write in the old Lincoln Park days. Oh yeah. Oh man, I, I I need to apologize to a bunch of people. 
After that, all of a sudden, I go back into managing, and uh, I picked up a band from Ashes to New, um, signed them to uh, Better Noise, Eleven uh, Seven, and I did, was doing great with that. Kind of, I learned a lot about the modern streaming music business. I knew a bit, and I was teaching myself as it kind of went in the early teens. But I, they were a good band to kind of, you know, say. And I took that for a couple of years, and that ended. That ended because I just my heart wasn't in it anymore. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And by the way, that's another thing you learn after all these years. You just got to call it like it is. My heart wasn't in it. It's a marriage. It's a relationship. It's a, I still love, I still love this guy, Matt. So, you yeah. know, and job satisfaction and, is big job. And if you're the owner of the company, you, you went into business yourself so that you could have, you can measure your own job satisfaction. It wasn't, you weren't beholden to somebody else to dictate what that would be. Yeah. And for you to make that call, sometimes, again, it's hard. You need to realize what your set of values is. Yeah. And for anybody who's listening to this, you do have to understand that when it comes to bands, you know, like he worked with Lincoln Park and he had to walk away from it. And like, oh, big money and fabulous prizes and be dead 15 years earlier or just hate myself and not be able to look myself in the mirror, as you said. Or I can go work on something else, be happy, say I did that and find some other things that I could hang my hat on and be successful with. Well, that's a whole other thing. You know, the Lincoln stuff, I could have stayed there. But they would have moved it around somewhere else, knowing that my heart was that my relationship with them was. You would smell that. They would smell that. Oh, you know, I mean, it, 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 they, it totally it was going there anyway. Yeah. It was going. You know, the, the the smartest thing you could ever realize, whether it's hindsight or not, is realize what's going on. Yeah, I knew everything that was going on. Right, that's the one thing that the that that a manager and 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 or anyone listening in any way, shape, or form, if you've been a manager long enough. And you think that they don't know or haven't heard about every little sneaky move someone tried to pull around you, behind you, everywhere. We hear everything from everyone. <laughs> right? I always make the joke to everyone. I always make the joke that what we know as managers could probably sink whole countries. <laughs> right? No, seriously. Because yeah. that's what we're, we're, that's our job yeah. to just keep it or not use it. And, but through, Every single thing, every single negative. If, if if someone says something, you know about it. Yeah. Someone wants to tell you. Yeah. Well, someone. <laughs> it's just like when you're in high school and like your best friend is dating someone, and you see that person kissing somebody else. You're like, I have to tell them. I have to tell them. Ooh, you wouldn't believe who I saw Jenny kissing. She was kissing Bob. Yeah. Bob. Fuck Bob. Yeah. Fuck Jenny. So nothing was so nothing was ever a surprise. Yeah. But I think that's why you end up burning out. And you're just like, I just can't do this anymore. Yeah, you can only swallow you can only swallow so much until you're full. Yeah. That's really what true. it comes down that's to. Actually a funny way you know, you, yeah. Eventually you get full or your stomach bursts. Yeah. It's so. one of the two, man. So the so then from Ashton New, same thing, you know, it was sad when Matt called me that day and he's like, dude, man, this just isn't, you know, you're you're not there. I'm like, you know, I'm just burnt. And and I had, I had to help him get through getting past old band members. Like I I I still this kid, he's he, he's going to he has his own way of going about it, but he can do it. You know, this his name is Matt Brandyberry. I'll give him a shout out. Um band is from Ashes to New. They're good. And you know, and I always end up it's funny cuz 
they always they were a band that their music always was, was full of what I call uh, isms, Lincolnisms. Mm. I always end up with these kind of rap rocky. I always at least have one on my rosters. Well, actually, so that, that's leading to my next question, which is, you know, who is it that you are working with now, and and who do you, you know, let's let's do a couple of minutes on on who it is that you're actually working with at the moment, and and I think Bloodywood is one of the first things that comes to my mind when you talk well, about Lincolnisms. Another, right, right. They're another band. They're they're. Uh, an Indian folk metal band, as they call themselves. Which is such a great d- genre yeah. when you think about it. Like, they created it. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, listen, folk metals, they didn't create, right? No, it's but Indian folk metal. Indian folk metal, right. right. <laughs> the Scandinavians, I think, have that unlocked. That's a different that story. Darker, yeah. You know. yeah. But, uh, you know, so yeah, Bloody Wood, they're just, they're, they're a great bunch of guys from there. They, they do have that rap rock vibe, but they just, they're, it's just upbeat and fresh and you just feel it. You know, you just feel what it is. And, you know, I just, I ha- I love it. I love the energy of a good rap flow. I love the energy of a nice, clean singer mm-hmm. and and everything that you can put in. It doesn't have to be a new metal sound, right? Yeah. But what you can put around it. You know, and everyone keeps trying. Everyone keeps trying to find these Lincoln sounds or try to find his, I mean, listen, I'm very proud to have been part of an organization and a band that I believe defined a probably a generation of young musicians. Truth. You know? So that, that makes me feel really good because we worked really hard. You know, I would have the talks, go, go to Lincoln for a second, I would have the talks with them talking about how it's you want to do things that people will remember that that's what they wanted to end up being. You want people to be able to emulate you and say, you know, this is a band that mattered. This is so everything you did with your fans, everything you do, you really have to take care to not manufacture it, but make sure that your right intention comes out yep. and that you're leaving a lasting imprint so it stays so it stays there. And just from my from what I've heard of Bloodywood, everything that you've made me privy to, and it they have that blueprint. They do have the Lincolnism, so it's a little familiar. Yeah. Which is fine, but it's not. But it's not a hundred. But it's like not a hundred percent exactly. Yeah. It has that 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 Indian flavor to it. Yeah. Absolutely, a hundred percent. And how could you avoid that well, considering their thing, heritage? The, the, the raps are the verses, right? Mm-hmm. And those are in English. Yep. And then the choruses are in Hindi. Yeah. So it's great. So yep. you really kind of and and you find yourself phonetically. And they, they, the good news is that they make sure that they caption all of it, so you can yes. sing along. <laughs> yes. So you end up learning a bunch of Hindi song yeah, words exactly. as you kind at of least go phonetically, yeah, as phonetically, you said. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Only phonetically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You wouldn't know how to use it in a sentence. No. Like I don't think you would go like screaming their lyrics at somebody if you went to Mumbai or yeah. something. Like that. like, that's not going to get you. It would you be know, a little weird, right? Yeah. You, you're not going to learn where is the bathroom because first I'm sure it has a northern <laughs> dialect to it. First of all. Yeah. Yeah, every jeez, but to me, you know, that's a band that that I think is on the precipice of really making those those inroads, especially in, and and I want to call it well, an emerging market, but like, it is, they, you know, they, they were a band that started out a couple of guys taking pop songs and turn them into metal covers. Mm-hmm. Then they decided that from that point they would start doing a couple of original songs. There's this guy in the in the band. His name is Karen. Um, he's brilliant. Like he makes. If you ever look them up, the videos he edits them, he makes them. That's awesome. Like everything, everything he he puts the songs together with uh, Giant and Raul. Those are the singer names. Giant's the clean singer, and Raul's the rapper. Um, and and then they have a a band a, night, a band behind them. They they toured for the first time last summer, and out of uh, I think it was like out of twelve, I, I think it was fifteen shows total. They sold out twelve of them. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. Awesome. It blew it blew their mind. 
You know, we just put, they've just put some merch on sale and they've sold out of that. Like their first, like they, they really have something cool that they're doing right. And they're taking their time. Like I would love to rush them a bit more, but you can't. Well, right now, especially well, with the state of yeah. affairs that, that we're in as, as a world. With so they're COVID-19, making great, so. they're making great songs right now. And, and Raul's very, he's a very conscious type of rapper. He, mm-hmm. he has a whole you know, no flag. We're all in this together. That's the name of his brand. No flag. He's building this whole kind of conscious side of it. That's great. It's really cool. Yeah. I got to give him a lot of props. So they do it themselves. I mean, mm-hmm. listen, I'm going to help them out, right? They live in new Delhi. You know, I'm, you know, we're, we're 12 and a half hour time difference. Yeah, really. You know? It's a lot of zoom calls at midnight slash noon. Yeah, no, it, <laughs> it is. It's, it's, it's 10, it's 10 o'clock. It's 10 o'clock at night for me or 10 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. 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 So and that's now that's that's one of the bands you're working with. And now let, let's talk about another band that you're excited about. I'm excited about, and that's Icon for Hire. Yeah, Icon for Hire is a they were a band that was on a, a label called Tooth and Nail that didn't work out. Uh, they had to go bankrupt because it just bankrupted them, and wow. they had to get out of it. Yeah, they had to give everything up. They gave all the music, all the rights to this guy. Oh, sad, boy. sad. It's it's you know it's, it's one of those t- sad stories. T- Taylor Swift just made a bad deal. These guys got fucked. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's wow. put it that way. That's you know? terrible. Um, I'm sure there's a whole other side of the story, but you, you're looking at it, it's pretty plain who yeah. won, right? On, on, on paper, they lost. Yeah, yeah. So, But then they <laughs> DIY'd it, and then they did a Kickstarter thing. is about five years ago. $127,000 they raised from their fans. Wow. And they rebuilt this entire organization and everything. I got, I got involved in about a little over a year, year and a half ago. A friend of mine, Gary, from the UK, put us together. And it's been really truly a phenomenal uh run they've made the best record of their careers you know when i was joke making the jokes about mixing this morning earlier and uh, you know we were talking it was all about these guys we're we're sitting here mixing with a we have a mixer in the uk they're in nashville i'm here they actually merged their quarantine in nashville with another producer a guy named david thulin and they actually made a record during quarantine which is they, awesome. Yeah, they had to merge their quarantine with, fa- with their, 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 theirs and with, with David and his family. So, you know, listen, because no one knew what it was or what was going on. So yeah, that was yeah, kind of yeah. dangerous at the moment, yeah. you know. Um, and they're going to, we're, we're dropping songs pretty much every month, September, October, November, album, December. You That's know? great. It, it's been helping me stretch too because it started with, with, with From Ash to New and what I'm doing with them is I'm doing a lot more, I'll just call it executive producing right now. Hmm. But it's really helping me understand. Like I'm, 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 I'm getting on the phone with them, and I'm hearing the changes that need to be made to songs, mm-hmm. and I'm finally visualizing that stuff with them. So that's actually an exciting thing for me too. So just to just to give a little more specificity about Icon Fire, it's it's a duo. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a duo. But they're the heaviest duo you're going to hear, and the poppiest yeah, well, heavy. Yeah, yeah, well, they're pop. You know, listen, they they come from that whole. They come from that. I wouldn't quite call it pop punk. It was probably pop rock, but the warp tour scene of that pop rock side of it. Female lead know, singer. Female singer, husband, wife duo. They built this all themselves. It's actually nice to be picking up bands from a point above. Yeah. You know, I've been developing bands for 25 years. So it's really interesting to kind of attach myself in that notch above. They work so hard. They fall, they, they get it. Like, like some people just don't get it. Right. And, you know, and I'm trying to mix some really interesting old school thoughts and ways of doing things. Cause they're very relevant. Now people just don't realize it mm. until I explain how it kind of works now. And everyone goes, Oh yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, we'll see, we'll see how this whole play, how this whole thing plays out. 
So when it, and so you said every month subsequent between now and the end of the year yeah, with the album much, being September, released, middle September, middle of October, middle of November, and then an album December fourth. Remember so, that, people. Remember that so. December fourth. Icon for Hire. What's the name of the album? Do you know yet? Amorphous. Amorphous. Okay, so you heard it here first. Yeah, it probably did actually. And, wait, wait. Uh, when is this airing? An hour from now. Fuck. I'm yeah. kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. You're gonna be, you're... <laughs> so you have Bloody Wood. An icon for hire, two newer artists that you're really excited about working with. But recently, you started working with somebody of, well, maybe, maybe, maybe some people in our audience may have heard of this gentleman and the band that he sings for. So, Ian Jenkinson, he reached out to me and, and he was telling me about someone he was working with and he would like me to come meet with him because he thinks he's going to, he's going to do the management. And he'd like to bring me in when appropriate for co-managing it. And I said, all right, cool. So okay, it ended up being Perry Farrell, right? So it's Perry I've Farrell, heard of him. lead singer of Jane's Addiction. Porno for know, Pyros. Porno for Pyros, uh, owner of Lollapalooza, yep. Kind Heaven, which is his latest project that he's been doing. And that was an exciting thing because being a, a kid in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, nothing shocking and, and Ritual De La Habitual are, are massive records to anyone that was in their late teens, early 20s. Staples of alt-rock, yeah. period. And and really, American alt-rock festivals are based off of Lollapalooza. Yep. You know, especially when the traveling ones. I mean, when I did Linkin Park's Project Revolution, it was totally based off of Lollapalooza. And that's been fun, right? You know, when I got in in January, we, I, put up a, I put together a tour. COVID hit, we just took down a tour. Ugh. And then we pivoted from what was going to be a a remix of an album called Kind Heaven that he'd put out last year, we turned it into a box set that's coming out in November. That's so great. we had kind of, we just pivoted on it and said, listen, let's just find all these things. And, and it's a really, it's a box set of all of his solo retros of his solo works. So it doesn't have Jane's Addiction or Porno for Pyros. This being all his own solo works, we thought this would be a really good thing. Remixes and you know, fine art print from this from this artist Zoltar. It's nice. I got I I got to give him a lot of props, and it's been fun too because as I get to know him, as we're the story that we're putting together when we're selling the box set now is we're interviewing him for each piece chronologically. So like he had a band Psycom before the Jane's World. Now mm -hmm. we're talking about his first solo record song yet to be sung and his compilation Rev he had done before into the Satellite Party records. And then these different soundtracks and stuff like that that he had done. So it's very interesting. And it's it's funny that you have a nice boy from Long Island is now working with another nice boy from Long Island. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's really, it's funny, right? Because he's from the Five Towns area. Yeah. Queens and then I think Five Towns yep. he'll end up living in. So that's all awesome stuff. Is there, uh, before we move on to our next segment, is there anything that you want to leave the people with when it comes to artist management or anything, any closing words about your career? Yes. One is live long and prosper. And the other is be excellent to each other. Whoa. You made both of those up, didn't you? Nope. I'm you sure? sure. We might need a copyright lawyer. <laughs> those might be trademarked. <laughs> Uh, great. So actually I'm going to tell everybody what I'm actually going to do right now. I'm going to hit pause on this recording and get yet another beer. Cause I think I'm going to need it for the next three segments. It's time for one of my favorite segments and yours, even though there's only been two episodes of this podcast so far. And it's something called this, this song, song sucks. That's right. This song sucks featuring your host, Mike Venezia and special guest Rob McDermott. And today Rob picked the song. 
And uh, it's really interesting. It was a really interesting choice because I agree for a lot of reasons, though this might not be one of those things you go, well, you know, why'd you pick that one? But after thinking about it for a bit, right, this song really does suck. And the song is Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter from No Prayer for the Dying by Iron Maiden. I believe it was 1990. 1990. It was originally on the Nightmare of Elm Street 5 soundtrack. But not by Iron Maiden. No, that was a Bruce Dickinson cover. It was during his solo tattooed millionaire. I saw that show. Sundance? Sundance. Larry Mitchell opened for him. Oh, my Lord. Sundance was a venue in Long Island that was like the metal venue to see anything. Um, And it was funny enough, there were enough drugs and alcohol done there. And now it's actually a drug rehab center. So it's really kind of ironic. Um, But yeah, this song, those of you that know it, you know it. Those of you that haven't heard it, go find it, uh, stream it. You can at least give them a couple of you know, they're 0.03 cents for the stream for listening to this absolutely shitty song. And Rob, why don't you start off with why you chose? I mean, I have my reasons. Why did you choose Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter? You know, and I actually got a little bit into an uh, argument with someone about this not too long. <laughs> um, well, because they like they like this element of Maiden, or they don't mind this element of Maiden. I mean, I got into Maiden, you know... It, Long story short, I remember it was my 13th birthday, and my friend brought, brought over, uh, what is it, Number of the Beast had a trooper on it. No, Peace of Mind. Yeah. Peace of Mind had a trooper on it. So that was the first Maiden song I heard at 13 years old at a sleepover that I had at my house. My buddy, I can even remember his name, Glenn, Glenn Garvey, brought it over, and he was a cool one. We listened to it. It means nothing to anyone except for if Glenn ever hears this. He didn't come up with the Peace of Mind album. He had the 12-inch of Trooper. Oh, wow. That he brought to, to my birthday. So the EP, essentially. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I want to say this was sixth grade or whatever yeah, it yeah, was. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, and actually, I remember it. This is actually really funny because this ties in to one of your other podcasts. That birthday, that sixth grade birthday, I received my first record of my own as a gift from my sixth grade teacher, the greatest guy in the world, and a guy named Mr. Poveromo, Glenn Poveromo, Mr. P., he bought me the police synchronicity. Ah, there we go. And you talked about mother. Oh yes. And how bad that is. And you right. know what? Even, and even this new pag- podcast now in retrospect song still shit. Yeah. That song still sucks. Yeah. 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 It does. You know, it's, it's, it's a notch above what, what was the other one? Miss Gradenko on that record. Oh God. I don't even know. <laughs> so, all right. So peace of mind. So anyway, the so trooper peace of mind, the yep. trooper, so, so I go from there and I become an Iron Maiden fan, right? Mm-hmm. Not immediately, but over the course of years. Mm-hmm. And now we're going into, you know, I'm finally going to concerts and going to Seven Sun and Seven Sun tour, right? But I had bought, you know, I, I have Live After Death on my original vinyl that I bought it at a, the, the, the classic metal store in Massapequa Park called Agents of Fortune. Yeah. Right? This Park is Boulevard. Classic Park Boulevard. Oh. That's where I went to metal signings, went to all that stuff. That every, was, every suburban area had that store you know and for us it was agents of fortune agents of fortune yep tattoo millionaire comes out and you're like oh oh no okay what did he do so you hear it and you're like all right i yeah okay bruce i get it that's where i learned actually because i never knew it because i'd only seen videos of him from the stage angle 
I learned how short Bruce Dickinson was. <laughs> <laughs> the tattooed millionaire tour because I finally got to see him. I was like, oh wow, okay, he's not that tall. By the way, that whole band, not tall, except for Nico McBrain. He's like of, of like normal human height. <laughs> I never even thought about that. Yeah, look at Bruce. Is, never actually, Bruce is like four foot one. <laughs> I've never seen anyone up close other than meeting Bruce because we, you know, it was I, at that point, I believe we were college radio guys. So we got to meet, I think I met Bruce before or after. I did like a little. little Come say hi to the oh, radio meet and greet. So, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so now we're all excited because another Maiden album's coming, right? You know, we had, you know, we were like, all right, cool, another Maiden album. All right, this is weird. Now this guy Yannick Gers, who was on Bruce's solo record, is now going to be an Iron Maiden, a right? third guitarist, right, 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 a third guitarist, right? It was, it was already the perfect harmonies between. Be, between uh, Adrian Smith and Dave Murray. Meanwhile, like the yeah. last band that did anything that had three guitarists was like Leonard Skinnerd. Like you know, there, there's right, not right. there's not but, too many successful three guitar bands. Right, right. And listen, listen, Maiden, and they love having three guitars. I was just saw an article not too long ago. Yep. So God bless them, and it works live. You still see it. Yep. It works great. They do it just for the core fan that had been around there. You're just yeah. kind of like, why are you messing with it? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, you know, that album comes out. So an album comes out. And Yannick's album, in the band. And then I, I see, I'm not sure where I first heard Bring Your Daughter to Slaughter. It might have been getting it from the record company. I'm not, I don't think he played it during a Tattoo Millionaire Live. Mm. I don't, it wasn't on the original pressing of the record. That I do know. Because it ended up being, it was a soundtrack song. Yeah. So it ends up on the Maiden record. They had another song, Holy Smoke. Uh, I pulled that one out of my, wow. out of my head. That was the that was a single, good yeah. it was a good maiden song. You're like, all right, it's not everything else. They're going in a different direction. You can hear it, but it's that. And then the second single comes out, and it's "Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter." Right? <laughs> it's not this amazing poem about an ancient mariner reciting <laughs> to you. It's not learning all about the ancient you know, Egyptians or stuff that they're doing. It's not, it's not running to the hills and learning about the American Indian Travers. It's bring your daughter to the slaughter. All right. Let, let's it's just <laughs> dripped of, of, of holy shit. This is so fucking cheesy. Look, we all got used to as high school students. We hated history class, but we learned everything we needed to know from Iron Maiden. Dude, dude, right? Maiden, Maiden was the easiest thing that you needed. Maiden taught you that these are the only things you needed to remember from yeah. high school. <laughs> you, ne you needed to know Samuel Taylor Coleridge. You needed to know... Indians good, people that killed them bad. bad. <laughs> <laughs> these are these are great basic concepts. Right. And and then like bring your daughter to the slaughter. First of all, the title's misleading for me. Oh, this is gonna be some badass Iron Maiden tune. It's gonna be like the darkest evil thing. Then it's like this close to a hairband song, right? <laughs> it's, bring your daughter. it's it's one can of Aquanet can. away from being a hairband song. That's how close it was. Uh, and then on top of that. It's a song the singer wrote. Now, in some bands, that's perfectly okay. And I'm not taking anything away from Bruce Dickinson. If Iron Maiden had written the song, it would be the laziest Iron Maiden song on the planet. It really, I mean, that's just what it sounds like. Remember, the chorus is, bring your daughter to the slaughter. Let her go. Let her go. Let her go. It's, it's, I mean, it's I'm, dumb. I mean, it, 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 is that, is that. 
Ralph Waldo Emerson. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to figure out where this kind of fits. I, and, and again, again, as a maiden, <laughs> as a maiden fan, right? It's and Kerouac. You, yes. <laughs> no, by the way, uh-uh, uh, I love Kerouac. <laughs> this sir is no Kerouac. <laughs> Honey, it's getting close to midnight, and all the myths are in town. True love and lipstick on your linen. Bite the pillow, make no sound. Whoa, the, this is awful. Yeah. I mean, right. it's funny. But <laughs> There's some living to be done before your life becomes your tomb. Ooh, tomb, that's an old maiden song. So we, we could use that. There's one word. One yeah, word. there's a song right. regarding death. Yeah, right. Yes. All right, right, we're good. You better know that I'm the one, so unchain your back door, invite me around. All right, so I've listened to that song I could probably count how many times because it sucks so bad. I never knew the words beyond the chorus. Now I wish I did. Because what was those last two lines again? Please repeat those. You better know that I'm the one. So unchain your back door. Invite me. (laughs) (laughs) The euphemisms. Amazing. I there. there, By the way, you know what I think this is? Shitty? No, I think it's I think it's the full <laughs> Churchill speech before <laughs> that was before yes. <laughs> that was before high. Ace is High. Right, yes, right. it's the full church. This is the full Churchill speech. It's the preamble before the preamble. We will. <laughs> we will fight in the back door. <laughs> you will just pray that I'll be waiting because you know that I'm coming soon. <laughs> never surrender. <laughs> <laughs> so bring your daughter and never surrender. <laughs> Sorry, it's so. It's just so. I mean, like now hearing the words, dude. It's even worse. By the way, I'm not kidding. I'm like you. 1990. I've never read the lyrics till right now. Yeah, it's 30 years later. Like, yeah. and, wh- and, who and, would and, wanna? And now we can't put that genie back in the no. bottle. No, no, we're fucked. This is it. This is probably the last podcast. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's so so bad. All right. By the way, I'm just checking another site just to make sure those really are the lyrics. Uh, you know but what? Yeah, if somebody, you it know, really if those aren't the real ones and there are other lyrics, they have to be actually worse. Right. And like that would, to- oh my God, that would be funny if there were other lyrics, but I, there aren't. They can't be because that, that amount of dreck and nonsense can only be written once <laughs> because there are bands that jump the shark at a certain time, Right. <laughs> And I love Iron Maiden, Seventh Son of a Seventh Son, and earlier. Yeah. Even Seventh Son, I know from more Maiden, hardcore Maiden fans, was a little iffy a little bit. It got a little experimental, but it was still still Maiden. Yeah, it was still It was still very Maiden. It was, you know, like there was a lot more futuristic concepts and like mystical concepts, you know. Well, I think there was was a little bit of the Can I Play With Madness was a little bit poppy for a lot of these older Maiden But that was still a Maiden song. It still worked as a Maiden song. You know, because it was in the thematics of the album. Exactly. It felt, it went with the concept. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to, to No Prayer for the Dying, which is just this, well, we need to put out another album sort of thing. And who's this third guy playing guitar? I think Bruce learned a very important lesson during Tattooed Millionaire. Don't write songs. No one, no one, no one gives a shit about your solo. (laughs) Bruce learned that, you know, he can't do the solo thing because Bruce alone is lesser than Iron Maiden. You could take many things like an Iron Maiden without Bruce was lesser. Remember Blaze Bailey? I've learned that with all of every, any band I've ever managed They've tried and they've realized that they just aren't 
Yeah, it's it's the it's the you know they're they're not. They're it's a not sum of the parts. Oh, sum of parts. It's a sum Always of the parts. Of Always parts. a sum of the parts. Like you know, Slayer just retired. If Kerry King said, you know what, I want it to keep going on. I need a new singer. It's not going to work. No. With Iron Maiden, they were at a time when they broke ranks and and Bruce left. They were still young enough to pick it back up again. And now they're a legacy band, and and that's great yeah. because they can go. They don't need to make another album. From eighty four, eighty five, eighty six. To that point, every one of our favorite metal bands, right? We got an Iron Maiden or Slayer or Metallica. They were just making the albums of their life. Yeah, like they're crystalline. These were albums. It was, yeah. it was, it was solid. Like to the core, you felt this. How great this was in your gut. You got fucking rain and blood. You're getting fucking somewhere in time. You're getting power slaves somewhere in time. You're getting master of puppets. Sun. You're getting you're getting you're getting ride of lightning into master of puppets. Yeah, into even injustice. Right? It's yeah. not quite what it was, but it was still fucking yep. this opus Metallica. Right? Yep. And then for some reason, 1990, they become musical lamos. Right? Everyone just goes backwards. In, in our mind, right? Yeah. As a, as a core fan. But I think there was I think there was something to that. I have thought about this before. And and what happened in 1990? You know, you had like the beginnings of grunge. All right. So let's let's put that let's let's compartmentalize that for a second. Let's leave that off okay. to the side. Right. All right. So you have all these great albums coming up through the late 80s into early 90s, and let's say that culminated, but it was start of the decline. And we talked about this earlier with the black album by Metallica, right? Yes. So. What happened at that point? There was nothing for metal to rebel against anymore for a while. Hair metal went away. Nobody wanted the super bubblegum thing with the big hair. They got they got old. Right. And when the guys were getting cuter than the girls, it, it was kind of weird. And then with metal, there was no longer this, this thing to rail against. It's just like, well, you're either metal or you're hair metal. Like, no, okay. Right. Everyone was finally getting that commercial level. Of it started to blend. Commercial level of success. Everyone in that time, all of a sudden, were getting these commercial. Yep. It, it had legs. The yep. scene, it wasn't a bunch of artists trying to do it. They were all coming together and they were selling arenas. And they were meet. But the thing is, the music was meeting in the middle a bit more. It was like, you know, blending. So then that's why grunge, for the most part, a lot of the grunge bands had great big hooks with this rough hewn sound that to big it kind of zeppelin stomp sound exactly it was like sort of back to basics but it had like these hooks that you would get from hairband but it was raw like what metal was right that's what carried music through the 90s at least you know guitar driven music through the 90s was was grunge up until new metal in late late 90s early 2000s right, right. when things you could rebel well, against not things even, again not, not quite grunge i mean listen zombie was doing art metal Pantera mm. was that kind of awesome. Pantera like, were the band Heartland. though. Like they it was were like Heartland metal. It was them know? and for 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 the great population, it was them and nobody else. For people that were in the metal scene, yeah, well, they was, were the young ones, right? Yeah. Because everyone anyone that was coming out from that yeah. point had already kind of made hit hit what now we're terming was their peak, but we didn't know it was their peak yet. Yeah. Right? Pantera took everything that came before them and made it more. They went completely the other direction. When bands were coming down that were extreme and becoming more mainstream, Pantera said, no, fuck you. We're just going to go in the other direction. And if you listen from, forget about the stuff that they did before Phil and Selma was in the band, listen to Cowboys, then you listen to Vulgar Display of Power, then you listen to Far Beyond Driven, and everything was getting more and more extreme. So they went the other direction, which is what captured audience because there were still a lot of people hungry for that. 
But yeah. they were the only band really doing that that made any inroads. I mean, yeah, like Sepultura was around at that time and they tore with Pantera. No, but, but, but that, that, was a, that was a connotation from a band that started in the 80s. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like like they were the newbies. That's, but that's the whole thing that now going back to No Prayer for the Dying. Yeah. And, you know. Even, they tried to meet in the middle. That's when e- that started. Even the Black Album. The Black Album, Metallica's Black Album, really had a, some good songs. Mm-hmm. But I remember, and you and I were talking about this earlier, we were at that listening party that they had. They, Metallica, Madison Square Garden. Metallica had a giant listening party at Madison Square Garden. They always joked around and said their album played Madison Square Garden before they did. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and and so even though it was good, we were still waiting waiting for our yep. old school patented Metallica. We heard it in parts, but it just wasn't satisfying enough. Yeah, it was. And, we were and all then, just sitting there going like, all right, what, well, the next song will be, right. you know, and well, then all right, maybe think, the next song. <laughs> but when was that album? That, album that was, was 91. 91. So Iron Maiden started the downfall 90. of great metal yep. albums. Yeah. It, pre, <laughs> it, it really. It really did. It was Iron Maiden was the first disappointment of the 90s. All due respect to Metallica, they toured, you know, five years on that album and became the breakout stars that they are today and one of the most influential so- uh, bands out there. But if you were a metal kid, growing up at that time and you wanted more and more of what you heard on puppets and like injustice was a bit of a departure and you're like, well, I hope the next, and then this came out. You're like, wow. Yeah. And so, well, listen, and the I same remember, thing with Iron Maiden. I that, that's all of us hardcore Metallica fans were very worried when we heard they were working with Bob Rock. Yeah. Like anyone, anyone that was in that kind of no, of being a fan like that, you're like, wait, where's Fleming Rasmussen? <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, like, not only that, it was, it was like, well, where's, well, well, that was afterwards. Didn't they do it before? No, nah, Load. Load is when they cut their hair. Oh, load of shit. They, they had their hair during the Black Album, so like there was that you know salvation. But yeah. for me, you're right. The Bob Rock thing was all right. Well, who's this Bob Rock guy? Oh, let me do some. Oh shit, he did Doctor Feelgood. What direction is Metallica heading in? It worked for them, and it worked for a large portion of the rock listening population. It became very accessible to those people. And, you know, like when your parents start listening to it, you're like, I need to move on to something else. And that's when Pantera became big. You know, that's really when they That's really kind of what happened. For those of us that we had a purity and allegiance to that purity. Yeah. Right? Back to it, right? Um, I don't know. There has to be a version of that now, I think. Where people do have it, but not many people are allegiant to that purity of something. I think it's more prevalent in Europe. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And you know, and actually, the warp scene there's definitely yeah. prevalence. To that that when that someone taste makes of it, a yeah. different album. Yep. those kids do not like it. The core kids get a little worried. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Like, Where's that. my punk? Right. Give me my yeah, punk. Yeah. If the black album was that record, because I, I I actually have to tell you, I don't think I've listened to that record more than a dozen times in my life. It was really funny because it was that time where all of a sudden I switched gears from Metallica to Pantera. Yeah, a lot of us did. Yeah. Because Metallica was no longer the hard man. Iron Maiden was no longer dangerous. You know, there was no there was no threat with it. And then, you know, and this is a bigger concept altogether after Pantera, who was the next band was Slipknot. So it was, you know, it, it was Slayer Metallica sort of tied essentially for dangerous bands and then it was pantera and then it was slipknot and there hasn't been anybody dangerous since there really would, isn't would i mean lamb of god be the closest no no they're not i think they're dangerous politically because of everything that happened to randy blythe and being yeah. incarcerated before that I, that was I, a bunch I, of bullshit I, 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 but... I liked you know i don't care too much for a lot of the newer ish stuff lamb of god when, when they were doing it you know I, I really like it i'm trying to think of anyone now 
in the last few years that I really, that's heavy, that I really enjoy. The only band that I, in the past five years, the past five years that I've enjoyed that's really heavy, and this is, again, off the beaten path, would be 12 Foot Ninja. Like, I really like 12 Foot Ninja a lot. And that's because I'm a huge Faith No More fan and a huge Mr. Bungle fan. And they're like Mr. Bungle if they were gent. You know, essentially in a lot of ways. And I don't mean to put them, put them, you know, pigeonhole them, but that's really what it sounds like to me. And I think the singer has an amazing voice. I think the guitar work is, is awesome. Apart from like 12 Foot Ninja, I can't think of many heavy bands. You know, Baroness is good. You know, they're a good band, but not dangerous. Yeah. You know, 12 well, Foot. I, I mean, what is now? I, I think danger has to start coming back if we're just going to go full circle with this thought. And by the way, if yeah. you're in a band and you want to make it and you want to be dangerous, I'm not saying like sacrifices on stage. I just mean like, <laughs> you know, dare to be different, just, you know, tr- push, push the boundaries. And it's not about strictly being fast and it's not strictly about being heavy. You don't need to tune to Q to be dangerous. It's an attitude. Just, yeah. Don't try to fit into what exists now. Please don't try to make it so that people have to fit into you. You're dictating your art and you're dictating the market and you're drawing people in. And that's when you build that loyal following because you drew them in. You didn't ask for it. You told them. Take inspiration from it. Don't use imitation. Mm -hmm. That's my bottom line. So looping back around, bring your daughter to the slaughter. This This song sucks. It really just fucking sucks. And I'm sorry, Bruce Dickinson. And again, as I say on each podcast, Iron Maiden, if you want to come on the podcast, we would love to have you. Uh, we won't discuss Bring Your Daughters to the Slaughter. No, they could explain it to us. <laughs> May, and maybe then I'll see. I want a master class. Trust me, I will I will to totally slaughter. kiss their ass if they come on here and said, that's the greatest song we ever recorded. I'll be like, yeah, sure. Better than fucking anything off Number of the Beast. Of course. As, as a lyric in the chorus says, let's now let it go. Let, let it, it go. go. Let, let it go. go. Wait, wasn't that from Frozen? It's, no, but it's let her go. <laughs> like, I, it's let her go, let her go, let her go, because she's going to the slaughter. Can I get Adina Menzel to do a cover of Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter in the theme of Let It Go <laughs> let from go. Frozen? Oh that would be so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Rob, you're a manager. Make this happen. No, we need someone in the audience to make that version for you now. Well, we need Adina Menzel to do it. No, they could, they could have copy her. All right, that's fine. Yeah, it is. Moving on now, moving on to our next segment. And this segment is another segment that I love. It's one of the reasons why this show is called Music Cover to Covered. And that is Discover. And this is where we have discussion of a cover song where the cover version in many ways, if not in all ways, exceeds the quality of the original version. Now, Rob and I talked about this at length, trying to come up with a few different ones. And there were some candidates that we may use on different shows down the road but the one that we both said, yeah, that one. And it's not because the original's bad. This version just sort of resonates with us. And that would be Summer Breeze, originally done by Seals and Crofts. Seals and Croft? Seals and Croft. It's only one Croft. So originally it's not, it's done not by- Lara Croft. Not Lara Croft, no. And not Croft Macaroni and Cheese. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Seals and Croft, Summer Breeze, redone- by Typo Negative. Oh, I love that version. From their Bloody Kisses album, which I believe was released in 93. This is such a killer version for so many reasons, but the thing that I think of first off, just right out of my head, is that they took the Seals and Cross version, which when you listen to it, the song is about like a day in the life of, 
in a lot of ways. He talks about, you know, you know, going out, coming home from work, there's dinner on the table, his wife's cooking, you know, all this other stuff. And summer breeze makes me feel fine and all this. And then typo negative took it, made it the darkest thing on the planet. This, this sort of poppy, upbeat, happy day ballad and gave it a whole different level of emotion. Never mind from his baritone or bass, I should say. Well, but it adds to that kind of it totally dark, does. gothy awesomeness of it. It darkens the whole thing up and gives it a whole different emotion. And they made it their own. And if the song had never been written before and, and you said, you know, this is an original typo negative song, people would be like, yeah, it is. Yeah, because it just fit them. By the way, real, real interesting tidbit that I just read from the Wikipedia page of Summer Breeze. Originally released as a cover in August 93 on Bloody Kisses. is originally to be titled Summer Girl, featuring new lyrics that were going to be that were written by Peter Steele. But Seals and Crofts found the lyrical content distasteful. <laughs> <laughs> and the original <laughs> lyrics were sung instead. That is, so it doesn't get any more brilliant <laughs> and awesome. And it makes it better because we know Peter. So it's yeah. even better knowing that, of course, he did that. Yeah, yeah. Rob, Rob and I, when we were both working for Andy Gould at Andy Gould Management, we, we were fortunate enough to be working with Typo Negative. Rob was the point person for Typo Negative. And, and I developed a friendship with Peter and the rest of the guys, for that matter. And uh, Peter is 10 years ago, man. 10 years he's gone. Wow. Isn't that crazy? And uh, I'm, I miss him to great death. Man. Great man. He was such a so great guy. Fun. I mean, look, he was a loose cannon, but he's an artist. You know, this is a guy and I'm not trying to like go off like, oh, I know this guy and name dropping. But I knew Peter like I would go to Peter's apartment in Brooklyn, live downstairs from his mother. OK, pick up a 12 pack of Heineken for him. And we would just sit there. He made me chicken cutlet sandwiches and we would watch Popeye cartoons. And I shit you not. That actually happened more than once. And we would just hang out. And I was just a friend. And this is after, you know, we were, we were working with him after I left the company. I'd moved right. back to New York at this point. He was just such a great, generous person and a friendly person. His genius, though, was in the fact that he didn't just write songs. He wrote these great big epics. You know, the guy was knowledgeable and he was a huge fan of the Beatles and Leibach. And if you think about it, most every typo negative song that you've heard is like a combination of both of those. And for him to take this song and make it their own, it's sort of par for the course, but they did it so well and all respect to seals and Croft, because that song was a staple on my mother's stereo <laughs> for years and years. When I was growing up as a kid, right. talking about growing up without those pop and those, yes. MOR, those MOR songs. Yes, absolutely. Up, you know? And the song is great in and of itself, but the way that typo negative did it, did it, I do have to say that they did it better. Yeah. They just, it was so, you just, you feel the song, right? You know, yeah. it's just, and it's more for us, right? Our parents yeah. would not enjoy the typo negative. Version. No, I couldn't play that for my dad and be like, hey dad, check this one out. And he'd go, oh, it's so much better. Yeah, it's not happening. Yeah, it's that's not happening. But I mean, good for them. It wound up making it on the, uh, I know what you did last summer soundtrack. And, and it, you know, it had legs for years. So those of you that may not have heard the song, that's definitely something you want to check out. If you don't know Bloody Kisses, the album, I would, I oh, mean, that, yeah, that, that's, yeah. that's their, a, that's their, that's a must have, must yeah, stream. that's an absolute yeah. must have album, must stream, must download, must buy, because you can still find it on yeah, CD. Yeah, it exists. 
that was, I mean, working with them was definitely one of the highlights of my career when I was in artist management. One last thing about Summer Breeze that I, I want to bring up is that when Rob and I were, were, were doing this research, we realized that there was yet another cover. Yeah, there was. That was done two years after the original was done. And it was, it was funny because we're like, oh, we, we thought for a second that, no, it had to be, Seals and Cross had to have done a cover of this version. Right. The Isley Brothers who wrote and, re- well, I don't know if they wrote it, but they recorded Twist and Shout, the original version of Twist and Shout, which I'm sure will be part of Cover to Covered at some point in the discover section as the Beatles redid it <laughs> and made it the big oh, hit that it is. Better. Way better. But yeah, the Isley Brothers did a version and we listened to it. And you know what? Shout out to them. It's pretty funky and cool. It's cool. It works for the Isley. If you're an Isley Brother fan, you go, that's the best version. No, Typo just had that. You just feel it. Yeah. Plus, fitting within the rest of that album, it just, it fit perfectly. It, it helped the flow of the album in a lot of ways. And you brought up the well, fact think that... about this gorgeous summer song, right? Or at least that's what it feels like. Mm-hmm. Just done in like this kind of tongue-in-cheek, dark, negative, cos- you know, gothic way. Yeah. It just so works. Because it's like, you know, summer breeze. You know, I, yeah. I, I just, I can't help but keep going there with it. Because you just hear it, you just like it's such a whimsical song at yeah. times, right? Yeah. To all of a sudden just hear it done that way, it's all you can think it's about. It's so cool in so many ways. So thank you very much, Typo Negative, for doing yeah, that. That yeah, was, was great. One, guys. Just Thanks. to sum it up, that was great. On to our very last segment, and this one is a new one. This is called "This Band Sucks." Oh, let's talk about that. Band now, right Rob now. and I both agree totally on this band that they absolutely suck. And I just really want to start off with, oh, oh you know what? man. You know what that music means? It means it's time to go and we're out of time for the show. We'll have to get to This Band Sucks next time. Uh, I want to thank my very special guest, Rob McDermott, for joining us today. Uh, Rob, thank, thank you, you so much for being here. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. And if you're looking for any more information about the show, check us out at www.coveredtocovered.com. You can also check us out at Instagram at cover2covered, which is cover with the number two covered. We're also available on Facebook. And hey, you can find us on Apple Podcasts. You can find us on Google Podcasts. You can find us on Amazon Music. You can find us on Spotify. You can find us in your living room, hanging out with your mom. Uh, Well, maybe me. Rob's busy. Your mom likes us. Yes, exactly. So anyway, thanks again. My name is Mike Venezia. We'll see you next time around. Music, cover to covered.